Isaiah chapter 6, if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read the, the majority of this chapter for us. In the earlier chapters of Isaiah, he's talking about all of the surrounding nations that have disobeyed God and will be called to account, and he pronounces woes, a woe judgment. Watch out, something horrible is going to happen to you. And in chapter 6 here, he sees the vision of God's holiness, and he doesn't say, woe is those people. He says, woe is me. What is it that causes a person to recognize their problem or to use the words of Jesus? What is it that, that, that shows us, demonstrates to us, those that have eyes to see and ears to hear? How do we know if somebody has eyes to see? And, and here we have an example of Isaiah showing us what it's like to have eyes to see as he's about to speak to people who do not have eyes to see. So let's begin at the beginning. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord. Of hosts. We'll stop there just for a moment. Who is he seeing? Who is he seeing? It's God. It's the Lord of hosts. But if we were going to pin it down to one of the three persons, is this the Father? Is this the Son? Is this the Holy Spirit? Do, 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 do. All right, we have a vote for God the Son. And if you read in John chapter 10, he's quoting this section of Isaiah, and he talks about those who believed in him, that is Christ. And so Isaiah, or I'm sorry, John chapter, um, John chapter 12, I may have said 10, John chapter 12 Verses 40 through 42. If you read those in the context of Isaiah 6, you see he's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. He's looking at Christ and he says, I am dead, I am lost, my eyes have seen the king. Not King Uzziah, because he's already dead. The king. And because of that, he needs to be atoned for. And verse 6 picks up with that. One of the seraphim flew to me, having, his hand as a burning coal, uh, having in his hand as a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
Well, now he's been atoned for. What else is left to do? Let me just come to heaven now, right? But he overhears this conversation. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, now that his lips are atoned for, says, Hey, I can do it. Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And then if you're looking at a a newer translation, this will be in quotation marks. These are the verbatim words he is supposed to speak. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like to have that job? Tell everybody to stop listening. Tell everybody to be blind. Tell everybody not to repent. Let their hearts become more hard. And Isaiah asks a question that probably most of us would want to ask. How long do I have to do this? Is this just today? Is this for a week? A year? Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, later on, he's going to carry out that thread, and we're going to find that there's a branch that's going to show up, and that branch is also Christ. And so there is redemption. There's hope for the future, but we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years away. In Isaiah's life, he is preaching a message that causes people to be blinded, hardened, and deaf. So how do we know when people have eyes to see and when they don't? In Isaiah, in his case, we see that he saw the holiness of God. He recognized his own sin and need for redemption. And we see that he he understands that he deserves wrath. So he sees the holiness of God. He sees his own sin. He sees his need for redemption. For repent or, or for atonement, or else he will get the wrath of God. Now we'll come back to Second Corinthians chapter three, because Paul's going to talk about some very similar things to what Isaiah both experienced and had to preach. Another example, and we're not going to turn there, but Luke fifteen, uh, Jesus is going to tell three parables: one about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about uh, two sons. And in, in the process of that, or the setup for that, is that Jesus is, is dealing with, or he's interacting with, eating with, people who are described as sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees and scribes are really upset about this. Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? Why aren't you hanging out with us? Don't you see how much better we are Well, if you back up into chapter 14, he talks about those who were invited and that there there were many who were invited who never came. 
And so he goes into the highways and hedges and he compels some to come who you wouldn't have, wouldn't have expected to be invited. And, and, and those that had ears to hear, he said, let them hear. And these sinners and tax collectors said, we hear you. Talk. Tell us. The Pharisees said, we don't need what you've got, but why aren't you looking at us? And Jesus tells parables about things that were lost. And he, the, the first parable of the sheep, he he has a guy who has 100 sheep, one of them's missing, and he lets the other 99 wander away while he goes and looks for the one. And he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent. Or as it says in another, another uh, uh, gospel, those who believe they don't need repentance. So... When we see this, we see the, the discrepancy here. You have people who believe that they are righteous who aren't, and people who aren't righteous who recognize that they're not righteous. Which one sounds more like Isaiah? Right, it's the second group. He, Isaiah is saying, I see God, I see his holiness, I realize that I deserve his wrath because I'm a sinner. And here are these sinners going, Yep, we're sinners. And here are the Pharisees and scribes who are sinners as well that are saying, no, we're good. We got this. We don't, we, we don't need your grace. We're okay. And they are, the they are then represented by the older brother who does not come into the house to celebrate the younger brother's repentance. So in chapter 3 then of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, this idea uh, early on that we, uh, we are, um, I'm sorry, such is the confidence, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. We don't have anything in and of ourselves that brings us sufficiency for even salvation, much less proclaiming this. And so he says, we have a need. He's seeing something that he needs. He sees that it's only met through God. He talks about this ministry of death, uh, it's an interesting way of describing the Old Covenant. He calls it both the ministry of death and he calls it, uh, let's see, what's the other description? The ministry of condemnation. Now, I don't know that that would have been the way Old Testament saints would have looked at it, but, but Paul's saying by, by comparison, or as you contrast that with the gospel, you see, man, it, it only did bring condemnation because nobody could keep that law. And so the, those that looked at it and said, I can't do this, we would describe those people as people that had eyes to see. Those who said, I can do this, or it really doesn't matter, they don't have eyes to see. Because they're, they're not seeing, number one, the holiness of God. They're not seeing that the way that they fall short of that. They're not seeing that, they're need, that they have a need from God. But Paul's saying, we are not sufficient. We must have God. And he talks then about the, the fact that Moses wears this, this veil, and he talks about the glory that's seen there. Um, picking up in verse 11, he says, uh, For if what was, brought, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And now drop down to verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, verse 14, he had talked about people whose minds were hardened, and that when they read the Old Covenant, that veil remains unlifted. 
So what has to happen? Christ has to take it away. He says, only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So there has to be a transformation. There has to be a change that takes place that allows us to see this glory of the Lord. Else we're just like the Old Testament or the people in, living in the New Testament times that were still living under the Old Testament. And he says they're looking at it, but they're still looking at it as if there's a veil over their hearts. So Christ has to remove that veil to give us the ability to see the glory of God. Without it, we don't see it. So we're blinded. We're, as Paul says to the Ephesians, we're dead. And here he says there's a veil lying over our heart. So we're in trouble. But if we turn to the Lord, the veil gets removed. So in order for us to have eyes to see, we have to turn to the Lord. Therefore, we have to see, just as Isaiah did, the glory of God, the holiness of God, uh, of Christ, and turn to him. Look to him for our help. And what verse 18 tells us is, after we've turned to him, it doesn't stop. We don't say, okay, now that I've got my, now that I've got my get out of hell card, I can go back to living my life however I want. No, we continue, we continue to change and be transformed from glory to glory or from one realm of glory to the next. So this progressive sanctification starts to happen and God starts to change us over and over and over and over again until we are, once, uh, we, we are completely in the image of Christ. So what starts at, at salvation continues in sanctification. He keeps on transforming us. And in order for that to happen, we have to be able to behold the glory of the Lord. We have to have eyes to see. We have to have a removal of the veil. But even then, chapter 4 tells us that the God of this world further blinds the eyes of those so that they can't see the glory. So let me pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hope. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we look at Jesus Christ and we don't see the glory of God, what's the problem? There's lots of them, right? First of all, we're dead, spiritually. Second of all, we are blind. Thirdly, there's a veil over our heart. Fourth, the God, that God has not shown into our hearts, into the darkness of our hearts. And that the God of this world is blinding our eyes. So there's a whole lot of reason why our wisdom is not going to overcome that. And for us to say, boy, if I could just do a miracle in front of them, they'd believe. Jesus did miracles all the time, and they didn't believe. You say, boy, if we could just create some kind of great spectacle that would draw attention, then we could show people how glorious God is. No, because they don't have eyes to see. 
They're blind. They're, they are, or they're, they're dead, they're blind, they're veiled, and they're being further blinded by the God of this world, and they don't have God shining light into them to be able to see it. So there, there's a whole lot of reasons why our wisdom is not going to cut through where the word does not cut through. All right? So again, we are not sufficient in ourselves to overcome all of this. Who is sufficient? Only Christ. And Christ gives us the sufficiency to take part in this when we take his word and proclaim it plainly. As he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So if our gospel's hid, it's hidden to those whom the God of this world is blinding. Those whom God has not shown into their hearts. Now, I think that's an interesting picture there in verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. What he's saying is the miracle of creation in creating light is equally the same as the miracle of shining light into our hearts. So again, no amount of our wisdom, no amount of our presentation is going to accomplish anything on the scale of that, that, something like that that's miraculous. And so the God who says, let there be light, is the one who miraculously shines the light into our hearts so that we can see the knowledge of the glory of God. It's not something that we as humans can do. It's something only God can do. And so our part is proclaiming the truth and relying on God to shine into their lights, into their hearts, to, to remove that veil, to give them spiritual life, to give them spiritual sight. And how do we know if he's done that? Well, instead of them leaning on, them, on themselves, they lean on Christ. And it doesn't stop. They continue, as, verse, as 3.18 says, they continue to be transformed from glory to glory into that same image, into that image of Christ. So somebody that has eyes to see, they're going to draw closer and closer to the word. We saw that with the disciples. Jesus says, hey, to you it's been given to, to know the secrets of the, the mysteries of the kingdom. To them it has not been given. Did they understand the parable right away? No, they asked questions. What, what does this mean? Explain this to us. Rather than saying, I don't care, or rather than saying, I already understand this, they said, we need to understand this. This is the words of life. Teach us more. It draws them closer and closer and closer. Those who don't have eyes to see, though, it hardens their heart. It drives them further away. And in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, it made them jealous and bitter. Jesus, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. They're not good people. You should be hanging out with us. We're, we're really good people. And Jesus says, your righteousness is like filthy rags and it stinks. Right? Oh, that was this morning. Smell. This is sight. Okay, so, sorry, I got confused. All right, so, is the gospel meant to be hidden? Is it meant to be hidden? Well, I would argue, no, the gospel is not meant to be hidden. When he says, if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing. I think what he's describing there is the fact that they don't have the sight to see it. But it's not because the gospel is meant to be hidden. It's not that we're supposed to walk around and try to judge. Do these people have eyes to see? Because if they don't, I don't want to waste my time. No, he says the, the, the seed should be scattered everywhere. And in verse 2, when he, when he talks about underhanded ways, 
He's talking about something that is hidden out of a sense of shame. Hidden out of a sense of shame. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We, that is, we don't hide this out of a sense of shame. We make it known. We present it clearly. We don't tamper with it, verse 2. Rather, we use an open statement of the truth. So that if it's veiled, it's not because we hid it. It's not because God hid it. It's because the God of this world is doing a work of hiding, uh, of putting that, uh, those blinders on these people to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. You say, why does Satan even bother to do that? And these people are already dead and, and, and they're already blinded and have this veil over their eyes. Why does he have to do something more? Well, he doesn't want anybody to have a chance of seeing the glory of the, of the gospel of Christ. And so he is trying to blind them. How does he do that? How does he even do that? Well, I think uh, some of the hints that we have in chapter 4 point us towards false teachers or those who don't present the true gospel, whether that's somebody in a pastoral role, a teaching role, somebody uh, online, uh, or somebody just you know, having their own ministry or, or going uh, up to people and talking about this. But, but in verse 2, he talks about disgraceful, underhanded ways using cunning and tampering with God's word. I, I would say that that's usually the false teachers that are doing those things, but, but, just, but anybody, any one of us could go up to somebody and, and proclaim a false gospel. Any one of us could tamper with God's word. Any one of us could use cunning or underhanded ways. And so while I think it's aimed primarily at leadership, I think that in a sense we all could be guilty of that. And so in order to not be guilty of that, in order to not be used by Satan, we should proclaim the plain, uh, as he says, um, open statement of the truth. A plain, open statement of the truth. Rather than trying to manipulate it in any way. And so I believe Satan can tempt leaders. I think uh, we've seen many in our day, and probably even back in the days of Paul and the Corinthians, that, that may have started off believing the gospel or preaching the truth of the gospel, and were enamored by one thing or another, perhaps a pursuit for personal recognition or personal comfort or wealth or whatever. Whatever reason, we do see many people today who are not proclaiming the truth. And Satan is able to use them to further blind the eyes so that people will not see the glory of Christ. Verse 5 mentions that we should be proclaiming Jesus Christ and not ourselves. Right? We shouldn't be hyping ourselves or, or lifting ourselves up. And again, we have leaders in our world that do that. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a sin to have a ministry named after a person, but but there are a lot of people that that's the first thing you see about them. You know, their ministry is named after them, and, 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 and we put a lot of stock in them, and then when they fall, we say, yeah, I guess we shouldn't have followed that guy. But if all they're doing is proclaiming the truth, the, the plain statement of the truth, then we don't have any, uh, any reason why we would be concerned about that kind of a ministry. So those who are lifting themselves up, those that are trying to make a platform for themselves, that are proclaiming themselves rather than Jesus. So in both of these verses, verse 2 and 5, we are seeing rivals to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Rivals to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So what we should be doing is highlighting 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And, and so the more we proclaim how glorious Christ is, the more we, re- we proclaim how holy God is, how we all deserve the wrath of God, and yet Christ offers to us atonement, and we can have that through his glory. The more often we do that, the easier it is for them to see the light. Now, if they're blind, if they're dead, if the veil is still there, we're not going to change that. But if God is removing the veil from their eyes, if God is removing the veil from their heart, if God is granting them spiritual life, the way he's going to do that is through the clear proclamation of the truth. And so, though we don't know who has eyes to see, we can proclaim the truth to everybody, everywhere we go. And as those who have eyes to see start following up on that, start getting closer to the word, start wanting to know more, we have the opportunity then to lead them to Christ. If they don't, he says, then it's, it's veiled to them. And it is veiled to those who are perishing. And if the ministry of condemnation brought glory, how much more, he says, will the proclamation of the truth, the, the ministry of, of God's righteousness being, bring even more glory? And so we want to keep on proclaiming the truth. It's not meant to be hidden. And secondly, and this is a much longer point, so we're not going to cover it uh, this afternoon, but the gospel is not weakened by our limitations. So if somebody doesn't have eyes to see, there's nothing we can do to overcome that. If they do have eyes to see, there's nothing we can do to stop that. Okay? So it's not weakened by our limitations. So that's why at the beginning and end of of chapter 4, he talks about the fact that we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. We continue on even if many reject, even if it it causes a, a stink in their nostrils to hear us presenting the gospel. We don't lose heart. We don't become peddlers of the word. We don't lean on our own sufficiency. We don't use disgraceful, underhanded ways. And on and on and on throughout the whole chapter 4, he's giving us all the reasons why it is that our weaknesses do not limit the gospel. And so let's continue to, to proclaim it and pray that God would open eyes, open ears, and open hearts. Father, we are grateful again for your, for your love to us, for your mercy that rescues us from our situation. We certainly could not have fixed our sin problem. We could not have found our way to you. We could not have uh, discerned truth. And so we needed your help all along the way. We continue to need your help to make us sufficient. We need your help to conform us to the image of your son. We need your help to make us bold proclaimers of the truth. We need your help to use your wisdom, not our own, to proclaim what your word says, not what we want it to say. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to give us the grace and strength and desire that we need to accomplish this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.